0: Thank you, everybody. We're into our uh, final session um, of uh, this afternoon before we take a break and uh, see some shows later. So uh, this session is uh, a star called Henry. And when my colleagues and I, Adine Howard uh, and Kelly Fielding, uh, looked at what uh, interventions we'd have uh, during some of the debates, the first play that came to my, uh, or the first. A novel that came to, to our head was uh, into our head was a star called Henry, which had a profound impact on me personally when I read it. Um, never mind the long uh, bibliography at the end, but certainly the, the what President Higgins called the uh, the courage of imagination and the desire to for new myth making. There was certainly uh, that novel was was a part of that. So uh, we've invited actually friends and uh, contemporaries and peers uh, to. Uh, discuss a Star Called Henry and also uh, to hear some excerpts of the Star Called Henry uh, during this next hour. So we, we're going to be eavesdropping into a conversation um, between Fintan O'Toole, who is uh, well known to a lot of us, but is literary editor of the Irish Times, and the Leonard L. Milburgh Visiting Lecture in Irish Letters at Princeton University. I think you're on your way over. Uh, so it was, the timing is great here. So we're delighted to have him here. He's, of course, a drama, he's been drama critic for many uh, media and many, many uh, both magazines and, and, uh, and newspapers. But uh, of course, he's well known as being uh, uh, both a drama critic and a cultural commentator um, of the Irish Times. For a while in the early 90s, he was a, a literary adviser to the artistic director at the time, Gary Hines, in the Abbey Theatre for a year. And uh, since then and before that, he's been, I suppose, a constant uh, interrogator of the Abbey Theatre. Um, and we all can either agree or disagree with what he says, but he's, he's, uh, he's been there uh, and a constant. Uh, uh, where others have disappeared. So I hope to continue that engagement with him over the next couple of years. You,
1: you, you made that sound like a threat there, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: no threat. No threat. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just, we won't go into the paranoia phrase right? <laughs> uh, So, uh, joining Fintan, of course, is uh, one of my heroes. A um, uh, person that I had the privilege of working with uh, on the Government Inspector. Roddy is, 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 is adores the author of 10 novels, uh, all the way from the commitments to um, Star Henry, of course, which is what we're discussing today. Uh, and he, of course, he recently adopted uh, the government inspector f- for us here at the Abbey uh, two years ago uh, to, to uh, Great Houses. So uh, welcome both Fintan uh, and Roddy uh, and a star called Henry. Uh, thanks
1: very much, Fayeke. It's lovely to be part of this, this wonderful event. Um, the 19, 1916 Rising, which supposed to be the context that we're going to talk about uh, now, or the the imagination of the 1916 Rising in a way, is in some ways very strange, um, it, it always seems to me, because um, if you think back to the equivalent of this stage, obviously it wasn't physically here, but um, it is an extraordinary moment when you think back that, that the 10th anniversary production by the National Theatre um, with the widows and... and um, orphans of many of the people who died in in the Rising in the audience is O'Casey's Plough and the Stars, which is a critique of the 1916 Rising. Um, And it is quite odd in its place, if you think of how central the Rising has been, politically and culturally, um, the mainstream response, artistic response to the Rising is critique. Uh, There isn't a big orthodox cheerleading uh, representation of the Rising, which, which says how wonderful it all was. Um, and uh, that perhaps tells us something very interesting about Irish culture. Um, and about perhaps sometimes the tensions between culture and art. That The cultural response to the Rising tends to be one of approbation and the artistic response tends to be one of, of very deep and sometimes offensive questioning. I mean offensive in terms of the way it's perceived by, by many people. Um, and uh, Roddy's novel um star called henry um it, it, i think arrived as a very fresh and and uh, original contribution to that dialogue between the culture and the art, between the way in which the rising is officially remembered and the way in which it it, it is represented um and one of the extraordinary things about it is that it 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 uh is startling it it avoids cliches on either side. Um, it's quite discomforting. Um, you don't quite know where you stand in relation to the story it's telling. Um, and uh, I think for that reason, it's, it's one of the books about The Rising that I think will be very much reread over the next few years, because it retains that power to, uh, to make The Rising seem strange, and to remove it from so many of the cliches that are around it. Um, Roddy, I suppose, or imagine at least, that for you, this wasn't just a sort of an exercise. I mean, you, for all sorts of personal reasons, I mean, you, your family has a lot of connections to that whole time, that whole yeah. movement, certainly on your, on, on your mother's side. Yeah. But also, your, I mean, your, your, your kids would be very strongly related to the children's family. So like a lot of Irish people, it's, it's both a kind of big public memory, but also something that's in the family.
2: Yeah, on both sides of the family. My father had um, two uncles who po- fought on opposing sides during the Civil War. That cliché, you know, brother yeah. fights brother. And one of them died. The other was a veteran of the uh, the First War. He joined up in 1914 and kind of, in a way, went off a hero and survived. Luckily, even came back. A much more complicated thing than a hero, yeah. verging on being a traitor. Yeah. Ireland had changed so much in the four years. But I suppose... Yeah, the, the house was always full of stories, always full of um, who did this and who did what. And um, and also, in part, it had nothing to do with my family at all, because I, I just listening to you talking about, I think we're virtually the same age, Fintan, if I remember yeah. correctly, but my first real encounter with the 1916 Rising was a tea, was a tea towel <laughs> <laughs> in 1966, when uh, I was eight in primary school. And in the run-up to the commemorations, the 50th, uh, anniversary um, we learnt the tea towel off by heart because the proclamation was on the tea towel <laughs> with pictures of the dead heroes around the perimeter of the tea towel at the edge of the tea towel and Miss Morgan our teacher uh, had it up on the blackboard and we recited it line by line and we had to go up and read it and then eventually she took it down and we had to do <clears throat> it off by heart and that was, it was like learning a prayer very very like learning a prayer and that kind of memory has stuck with me forever. Of course, when you're eight, learning something off by heart from a tea towel doesn't seem absurd. <laughs> it's <laughs> perfectly, you know, you know, when you're an avid reader, what else would you do with the tea towel? Uh, for it's later on, I suppose, and history presented to us, and you probably remember as well as I do, there was a, a straight line from the mythical figures Coo Cullen and Fionn McCool, through yep. St. Patrick, up to Brian Baru, the various O'Neills and O'Donnells, you know, the lads yep. who went on to form the, over, the undertones, <laughs> and then, uh, Wolf Tone, and then the lads in 1916. And there was no differenti- differentiation made between the ones who were made up and the ones who were real. And that was the straight line of history in primary school. And then, in a way, in in secondary school, Irish history of that time, the 20th century, disappeared without trace, you know. And in first year, I went to a a kind of, for want of a better word, an ordinary national school. And I moved then into the Christian Brothers. (laughs) You nod there as well, because our
1: (laughs) our lives are very... I lost those fingers learning history (laughs) in the Christian Brothers, yeah.
2: And civics was a new subject in first year. This is 1971. And our reading material in, for civics in first year was on Fulblocked and the United Irishman. Um, and then things got very complicated yeah. later on. Okay. So, this is, the, you know, this is the stuff that I grow up with. And I remember mean, there was a, an, an Irish teacher, we were doing that bloody awful book for Irish, uh, O'Fion on Firshig. Uh, you know, the writings of poor Rick Pearce and, of course, criticism was impossible because he was a saint and it was shite. <laughs> it was just shite, sentimental drivel about, you know, little birds and fellas dying of TB and, oh Jesus, it was just awful and we, you couldn't say it, you couldn't do it and this guy was in tears, the teacher at the front of the room was in tears talking about the beauty of this stuff, You know, <laughs> you know. God love him. And you know, so all, in a way, it, it, all this was building up towards eventually the book, Yeah. you know, because there was a certain, you know, those of us who have been around for quite a while, it's a fascinating thing. We've been, I suppose, consistently Irish and that, you know, the first time we needed an Irish passport has been consistent ever since, but actually what it is to be Irish has changed so much. And I suppose it all goes back to a degree to then, you know, who defines who we are? And it's, as we know, uh, it's still a fight that's going on. You know, who, you know, uh, who do we market ourselves for? Or who are we actually? Who defines it? So all these things were bubbling away in my mind. And, you know, from when I was a student, for example, and then on a personal level, then I'd written I'd written five novels. In a way, I was a slave to reality or realism. You know, a novel about a, a, a young girl who's pregnant. I'm a slave to biology in a way. And then uh, a novel about a woman who's been in a violent. You know, the novel I wrote immediately before it's Dark Old Henry, the woman who walked into doors. It's a woman who's been in a very violent relationship, and I'm a slave to that reality. And I just wanted a bit of more a bit more elbow room. And I thought, well, I'll I'll take all this mythology, this stuff that gets people fighting. And crying, you know, and they, they, the stuff that's produced some wonderful songs and an awful lot of really, really yeah. bad ones, and just, you know, see what I can do with it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I remember
1: opening the book and reading it for the first time, and, and um, it did confound expectations, though, because the first thing you thought, well, Raddy's Oil, write about Nice Six Rising, it's, it's going to be essentially comic mockery. Mm. And it's not. No, you know, I don't it, think so. It, it is very funny in, in all sorts of ways, and it has a kind of a comic expansiveness and exaggeration to it, but it's not mockery. It's, it's, it's much more complicated than mm. that. And, and I wonder, did you have to stop yourself from, from, from writing a mocking book about
2: it? Usually, I, I don't know if I kept any first draft stuff. If I did, if I did it's in the, um, the National Library, but I don't remember whether I actually held on to first draft stuff there, but usually the stuff where I go overboard is in the first draft. Yeah. And I might have done, but I, I wrote the book 16 years ago, I think. Uh, or 15, and I don't remember quite um, what I put in or what didn't go in. Yeah. Uh, but it, it became, when you start reading about, say, 1916 itself, because it only occupies actually a relatively small part of the book, but when you, the, the visual side of it is just stunning. And people tend to forget, it, it, it all happened in a post office. I know it's the GPO or whatever, but it was a post office, and it was, yeah. you know, they were selling stamps when the lads came running in, you know? And so it was like, you can imagine yourself, you know, you know, in the queue at Christmas getting you know, your stamps to send off your parcels and a bunch of loo jazz come in with guns. And the glass canopy, the heat was so intense that the glass started melting. And now you're in novelist heaven then when you, yeah. when you read this stuff really. And it's a basement, and I never gave a minute's thought to the basement. And there were women in there, you know, yeah. and they were making sandwiches and soup down in the basement while the other lads were freeing Ireland, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, all sorts of genuine heroism and a lot of absurdity. And then how do we, do we shoot the looters or do we let them go, you know? Because yeah. you know, looting is stealing, should we kill them? And all these issues, you know, when you read about the, the, what was actually going on in those, was it even six days? And the, you know, the extraordinary things that happened to quite otherwise ordinary people. Yeah. It's just, uh, it just, it offered so much really, you know, just, and uh, you know, even th- when they went up on the roof I mean, we've, I, I was on, up on the roof at the Westbury Hotel a while back. And you know, it is, when you see your own city from a different angle, I go, ah, this is fantastic. You know, so all sorts of stuff started uh, nudging me towards, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, really, just uh, writing something that I thought would be vivid and, uh, you know, yeah, it would be funny and particular to that particular narrator, but at the same time would try to capture the dramatic reality of what was going on.
1: Because in a way, the you know you could say it is a work of realism, but it's a work of realism about uh, well, in insofar as it deals with the 1916 Rising, it's a work of realism about a surreal event, and that therefore you know the yeah. the reality itself is so yeah. strange and exaggerated, yeah. and, and uh, all these kind of strange yeah. collisions of stuff going on
2: anyway. Well, you march off to war, and you think, how will we win the war? We'll occupy the post office, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or we'll, uh, we'll we'll build we'll build a trench in Stephen's Green not given a thought to the fact that the, lad, you know, the opposing lads can get up on the roof of every building around Stevens Green and you're actually, you know, you're not in the best position to defend yourself at yeah. all. So a lot of the, um, a lot of the decisions, the, the reaction to what went wrong in that week resulted in the victory following it because, you know, I suppose, you know, to simplify it a bit, the, the, the lesson was we'll never get caught in a building again yeah. and yeah. we'll move constantly and we won't wear uniforms and yeah. we'll invent guerrilla warfare. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So yeah, it was just. I I love. You know. I've been uh, several of the novels I've written. Are, they all involve a certain amount of research, and luckily, uh, maybe I when I was a, when I was actually a student, I wasn't a very good student. But years later, I suppose when I got the opportunity to study the stuff I really wanted to study, I really enjoy getting dug into the research. You know, and even you know stuff that, nothing to do with the with the rising itself or the War of Independence. I was given this lovely book called The Rivers of Dublin. And I I, I love maps, and I was looking at the maps, and I I didn't know most of the rivers, actually. Do You know, the names were brilliant, fantastic. And a lot of them were underground. And I thought, you know, when I started writing Henry, I thought, well, I'm gonna send one of the characters down there. You know, this is a new, this is a different layer of Dublin, this is a different network, or almost like a roadway that nobody else knows except this one character. And um, so I was opening my head to using anything that seemed you know, within the context of the book feasible yeah 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 um, like one of the
1: key things in the book really is is obviously the character of Henry himself and the, the invention of Henry and uh, I wondered you know Henry is obviously um, himself he's almost like the, the boyhood deeds of Kuculin or it seems to refer to that that literally mythic mm. world I mean did you did you actually read like the 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 old legends to do that, or was
2: it just in your head? No, I haven't read a legend in years. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was all bubbling away in the head, I think. um, As much as anything else, when I started writing the book, as I often do when I'm writing a novel, I do the research at the same time, and if anything occurs to me that that might have worked earlier in the writing, I'll go back. But I started reading um, Tenement Life in Dublin, an oral history of uh, turn of the century Dublin by Kevin Kearns. Mm Uh, and it, it, it was just fantastic, it gave me so much. This, he was, I can't remember when he wrote the book or when he interviewed the people in the book, maybe in the 70s and 80s, I'm not altogether yeah. sure, but these old people recalling life as it was um, for them in the early 20th century. And there was a woman uh, talk, uh, talking about the time when she was a little girl, and she'd be lying in bed, living in a you know, a, a, a slum, you know, tournament room, um, and she'd hear a man with a wooden leg going by at night, and of course, there's no other traffic competing with it, mm. really, and she'd hear a man with a wooden leg, a returned soldier, more than likely, and I thought that yeah, that's you know that's so I gave my you know I gave Henry's dad a wooden leg. And um, then it becomes Henry's weapon of choice, you know, naturally <laughs> enough. Um, so and it, it was full of these little things that allowed me to not just, in a way, normally I start with a character and then work my way around the character. I don't have any detailed idea of what the character is going to be because it's all words and you have to write the words. But I began to imagine him in this surrounding, really. And how would it shape him? And you're reading about brothels where you know there's now nothing, and you're reading about these incredible characters, just their names alone, that mix of Irish and English, and the odd bit of Italian thrown in as it would be in any city, except you know, we were, we were persuaded somehow, you know, going back to childhood, that everything Irish was one thing, one color, one complexion, one language. And of course, we forgot the fact that Dublin being a city, there's an awful lot more going on there. You know? So it, gradually anyway, we got a, got a picture of Henry. And I think I was reacting again, as I said earlier, to the previous work. I just wanted to give him and myself just extra elbows, so to speak, to make him a bit of a blower, you know, and if he could carry the story uh, grand. I wanted him to be born at the beginning of the century, you know. It was important. I don't know why exactly. I liked the neatness of it. I didn't want to bring him back, say, to 1890. Which would have made it a bit more fe- realistic, I suppose. But there's much more fun actually to be had in, you know, persuading him, persuading the world that he's actually older than he is, you know. Yeah. And it made it feasible that, you know, I never planned too far ahead, but I wanted it to be a story that would go right through the 20th century. So I thought, well, if I start him in 1900, it's just about believable that he could live the rest of the century, as has occurred on a, a few occasions. Yeah.
1: And I mean, as it happens, of course. Again, it, it's, it's, it's a strange exaggeration to have a kid of 16 in the GPO, but of course it's also Sean LeMass. true. It's also true, it's very interesting if you read the um, first-hand accounts, uh, like Sean Connolly, for example, who was uh, an, an actor in this theatre, was one of the leading uh, people in um, trying to take over Dublin Castle with the Citizen Army. Uh, mm. And uh, I was just reading uh, Helena Maloney's description of, of Sean Connolly getting shot on the, on the roof of, of uh, Dublin City Hall. It just mentions in passing that uh, you know, he fell into the arms of his brother, who was very upset because he was only 15 years old. Jesus. So you actually have children yeah. you know, as competence. It's, it, yeah. it seems so strange to us, but mm. of course it isn't. Um, mm. Do you want to read something, maybe, at this stage?
2: I'll read a short passage, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to read about the rising itself. I'm going to read about Henry's birth. Like um, most blowers, he remembers it vividly. Um, I, remember I, did, I wrote a book about my parents, a, a kind of a memoir of my parents, and I interviewed them. You know, it's a strange thing to say, you interviewed your parents, but <laughs> how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I, I did interview them separately. And uh, my father you know, was asking, where are you bo- where were you born? And he starts describing where he was born. Not only that, vividly describing the birth. His mother knew he was gonna be a girl. And so he turned out to be a boy. She didn't have a name for him, so he became actually named Rory after Rory O'Connor because he was born on the first anniversary of the execution, 1923, 8th of December. So it actually goes back to that because I have a version of his name, you know? So. Um, uh, anyway, my father described you know, his, his father taking him then to be baptised, and you know, as if he was there. Well, of course he was there. <laughs> but so, um, in a way, where did you get it? Henry, I, 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 kind of, I didn't lick it off a stone, so to speak. You know? So anyway, this is um, Henry's birth, and his father is also called Henry. Henry rushed. He skipped all the way, but he dreaded the quick trip home and what he'd find there. Melody was about to give birth again. Two children had come into the room over Silver Alley, but neither of them had stayed, Henry and Lil. Their final cough still roamed through Henry's ears. Neither got past the first year. There'd been other losses, miscarriages. They'd moved to another room in another house across Silver Alley. Melody looked over at her old window and saw her children's faces pressing against the cracked glass. They moved again to a house on Summer Hill. The room was smaller, the house meaner and moving was easy. Henry borrowed a handcart and went up, the, uh, and up went the mattress and the chair and the stool. Everything else went into the tea chests, the blue statue of Our Lady, the sheets, the blanket, the extra leg. They still had the knives and forks, but the spoon had gone missing. There was nothing new to put into the tea chests. Henry pushed his failure, failure to the streets of, to Summer Hill. He passed carts, met others, some, other flowing, some, some overflowing with bed frames, rags, children and grandparents, others next to empty, families on the move. Henry longed for a child to park on top of the handcart, up darker, damper stairs, through a room that promised, through a door that promised nothing. There was a window that let them look out at the yards behind the house. The window box still waited for flowers. This was the room that Henry was rushing home to. This was their last chance. he was sure of it. He was panting when he turned onto Summer Hill. He was getting old. He was 26. His hair was greying, although he hadn't seen it. He was stooped, carrying the heavy ghosts of his children. He could still feel them in his arms. He could smell them. Little Henry, Little Lil. His love for them was an unending fight in his chest. He was always on the verge of seeing them. He didn't sleep anymore. Henry was terrified. Granny Nash was putting sheets of newspaper on the mattress, pages of the evening mail and the Freeman's journal. The Baba will have plenty to read anyway, said Mrs Drake. Mrs Drake was the local midwife, the handy woman. She was a huge woman, a mass of muscle and slopes that looked like babies' heads bursting to get out. Melody wondered was there one in there for her, hoped and hoped there was. She sat on the chair and watched her mother laying the pages of paper on the bed. The buckets were full, one with hot, the other with cold water. The kettle was steaming. They say if there's news of a war on any of the pages, then it'll be a girl, said Granny Nash. (laughs) She couldn't read the headlines she was spreading on the mattress. She was finished now. The papers were flat and orderly and her hands were black. Mrs Drake was over at the window. Don't open it, said Granny Nash, as she gave the papers a last pat, till we've herself down on the paper, else they'll all blow away on me. Now, my lady, she said to my mother, her daughter, up you get now. Melody stood up out of the chair. Melody, Melody, Elephant Melody. It was cruel all over again. It was only 11 months since the last time she'd had to lie down on newspaper. She struggled the few feet to the mattress. Good girl yourself, said Mrs Drake, off you go. Melody lay back on the mattress, on the newspapers. They cracked and rustled under her and Mrs Drake lifted the window. That's a grand looking day out there, she said. A smashing day for bringing a Baba into the world. The steam dashed to the open window and the pain dashed through Melody. Stop whinging, said Granny Nash. You'll give the child a hair lip. (laughs) None of that shitery now, said Mrs Drake to Granny Nash as she rolled over to Melody. You're in charge of the water. Any more guff out of you and I'll fling you out the window and then we'll hear some whinging. And Melody started laughing. More pain thumped her back right off the mattress, but she was still laughing when she landed. Henry waited out on the street. He didn't want to be too near. He paced back and forth, watched at windows by hundreds of people who knew and feared his tap tap. Henry saw none of them. There was no window of his own to look up at. He was on the wrong side of the house. He went through the house to the yard and looked up at his window. It was open. He listened. Nothing. He couldn't stay there. He felt trapped. His coat was like armor. He'd be to blame if it went wrong again, if the baby didn't live. It was an idea that had become a rock solid conviction in the time it had taken him to get from Dolly Oblongs to the house it would it would be his fault he listened as he went to the back door and heard melody laughing she pushed good girl there's no rush give yourself a rest mrs drake gathered the sweat from melody's brow with a cloth that was gorgeously cold granny nash peered between melody's legs she didn't have to bend get away from there you said mrs drake you'll frighten the baba (laughs) melody laughed and pushed again Henry, back out in the street, wore half an inch off his leg as he stomped back and back again. He tried leaning on the railings, sitting on the steps, but he couldn't stay still. He had to move. He thought about going for a pint or something smaller and stronger. His nerves were in dire need of settling, but he didn't want to leave his post. She'd laughed. It was years since he heard her laughing. He was frightened. He was terrified that that laugh would be the last thing he'd he'd ever know of Melody and it would be his fault because of what he was. He hadn't noticed it getting dark. It was suddenly night, a bad sign, a bad sign. Poor Henry tried to ignore it. Night followed day. He ignored it, he ignored it. Melody pushed. Henry's leg got shorter and shorter. He listened to the fading echo of his wife's laughter. Melody pushed. He tried to hear, tried to remember it. He didn't notice that he was listing dangerously, dangling over the basement steps. Melody heaved. Her back was turning to screaming stone. It's a hairy head. Get out of my light. Mrs, Mrs. Drake cupped the head in her magical mitts. The warrant of it, she said, and sighed. There's power there, I'll tell you. Welcome home, my treasure. Melody, Melody pushed again. Henry toppled into the well of the basement. Melody pushed, and I, me, Henry Smart, the second or third, came charging into the world on a river of water and blood that washed the news off the papers. Melody fell back on the mattress. Mrs Drake held me up by the legs. She dangled me for all to see, like an almighty salmon she couldn't believe she'd caught. There's a lad, Mrs. Melody, she said. He must be a stone. He must be more than a stone. A lad in a feck half he is. His cord is as wide as me wrist. She slapped my arse and the air around us sang. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um,
1: Positively biblical. Um, <laughs> the, that image of the... The news being washed off the newspapers is just just absolutely wonderful. Um, in the book, uh, w- w- one of the things that y- you almost don't notice, and uh, uh, it's almost like a kind of a trick, I don't know if it's a conscious one, but for a long time in the book, you, you sort of completely forget about Ireland. <laughs> the whole thing, the whole struggle is about Ireland, but mm. Ireland means nothing to Henry at all. No. I mean, it's, it's, and, but even physically, you know, because of the way the, the book works, I mean, its, its landscape is Dublin and Henry's world is Dublin and it's even that subterranean Dublin and through the, the hidden rivers. Yeah. But it, it, it's strange for a reader because you, almost, you're almost getting towards the end as when you read it's This is actually all supposed to be about Ireland. you know, And it's, it, it makes a political point, I suppose, about Henry's world and the world that assists an army as opposed to the world of the, the, the volunteers and peers and the nationalists.
2: I think it does, yeah. Yeah, and uh, when he does venture out into Ireland, yeah. uh, it's very reluctantly at first, even though the love of his life is a product of Roscommon, Miss O'Shea, but he's very much a Dublin man. I, it's great fun to be had in, you know, The Dublin Man. As essentially, I think, you know, if a Dublin man hears you're from Paris, he feels a bit sorry for you. Yeah. Because you're not from Dublin. <laughs> and it's absurd, but it's kind of essential to what, you know, those of us blessed to be from Dublin uh, feel. So there is that, so there is, you know, allied, or if you like, in the mixing bowl with the political point is that, the fun, yeah. you know. But yeah, I think, um, I mean, essentially, and I, I'm quite content being Irish, I like being Irish, but I mean, it, it's a bit like uh, Donna McDonough's poem, Dublin Made Me. And um, I'm very much a Dubliner, you know, and I I a Dubliner first and Irish second, I think. Dublin are first, Chelsea fans second, Irish, <laughs> Irish third. <laughs> um, I feel the more we talk, the more further down the list. Ireland yeah, 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 will go. Exactly. But, anyway, yeah. but yeah, I think it was again the, 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 the official depiction of the 1916 Rising. Really, the the surrounding geography, the the tenements didn't really get a look in, in a way, you know. Yeah. And again, it, you know, it's when I was a kid and. I'd be in town with my parents, and I can't remember where exactly. Whether we were, you know, where my father would park the car, and we'd be walking into the city centre. And we'd be walking by these Georgian buildings. I would no idea they were Georgian buildings. I didn't know they had any, you know, historical of any historical interest at all. But they were much closer to what would have been the case in 1916 than they were. To what is there now, if you like, on Mountjoy Square, or some parts of Mountjoy Square, you get a sense of it sometimes when you see people sitting on the steps who are living in the houses in Mountjoy Square. But these big gaping holes, which were actually doors, you know, and the last of the urchins coming in and out, yeah, you know, yeah. because it's not, and it's you know, it's in our, it's in certainly it, it, it's in our memory. Uh, so yeah, I, I was always interested in that, that the you know the the, and that's why I think the Plough and the Stars is such an extraordinary play that life goes on despite the bit of a ruckus literally around the corner. Yeah. There's a revolution going on around the corner. Yeah. And uh, I think I'd, I wanted to take, in a way, take a, a, a Casey, or an O'Casey character and put him in the middle of it instead of on the outside looking in, he'd be in the middle, he'd be in the inside feeling quite lost actually and looking out, Yeah. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, it's funny again the way the, it's almost like the reality
1: um, mirrors the book rather than the other around. <laughs> Um, after the book came out, I was, I was reading that they released the witness statements, which are a fantastic treasure, really. There's no revolution anywhere that's well as well-documented as the Irish one because of all these extraordinary first-hand stories. But one of the stories was just a little moment of detail of one of the guys who was in boland's Mills with De Valera, um, And it struck me as a kind of, a. a it was almost straight out of The Star Henry, where mm. uh, at the end, there's no fighting in, in boland's Mills. Um, uh, much because obviously they, a detachment from there is very much involved in Leeson Street and all this, but actually at Bowls Mills very little happens. So Devler is kind of stuck there. At the end of the week, he insists on making a formal surrender, you know, that, that it has to be, to you know, so we all dress up mm-hmm. and march in, in formal array. And one of the guys says, you know, we, we were very upset, we didn't know what was going on, and, but we all thought, well, he's the, he's the boss, we have to do this. Except for one fella said, uh, F this for a game of soldiers. <laughs> I'm off <laughs> you know? and hopped over the wall, and they never see him again. And it's just I mean, that's it's Henry. Just, you know, his
2: pockets right. full of biscuits.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, uh, you know it, it, the the attitude, and he was he's uh, I, he was actually I uh, um, and I want to ask you about this photograph because. I, we'd published this in the. I did a thing in the Irish Times about the rising, and I used this story, and, but we didn't know who the guy was. And, and Des Garrity, who was a, a trade union official, I was. I met him subsequently, and he says that was my, <laughs> that was my uncle, who was called Whacker Reed. <laughs> <laughs> so you know Whacker was one of those fellows. Yeah. And oddly, he was the grandfather of Peter Reed, footballer who played for England. So when he went over the wall, yeah. he got over down to the docks, got on the cattle boats. He was a docker, so he knew the guys. They got him on a boat, smuggled him over to Liverpool. He stayed in Liverpool the rest of his life, became Harold Wilson's constituency secretary in the Labour Party. Yeah. And his, his, his grandson played, played for England. Everton in England. <laughs> right. And, and you know, so, again, no matter how fantastic you make these stories, because yeah. like, Henry's going to end up in America with Louis Armstrong. And, yeah. and, and people say, ah, come on, you know, it's, a bit, yeah. it's, a, it's a bit. But of course, narrative. This, you know, narratives do unfold in the most extraordinary yeah, ways. Do, yeah. and it,
2: it was highly theatrical. I know they, um, De Valera wanting to, you know, surrender in full metal jacket. My own image, my own favourite image is like Patrick Pierce or Pawrick Pierce, Pawdrick Pierce, uh, the sword. You know, getting on the bike and cycling in to the revolution in, uh, in, on Easter Monday. Cycling in from Rath wearing the full regalia and a sword. You know, and if you, were, if you were out, say, on the promenade at Clontarf, close to where, where I live, you know, and you're just walking your dogs or whatever, and a, a man goes by <laughs> on a bike, and he's not in Lycra, which would be actually refreshing enough, but he's wearing military regalia of some sort with a slouch hat up like this and a sword. Yeah. You wouldn't think, there's a man going off to free Ireland. Yeah.
1: Uh- there's another fantastic moment which I really love of, um, and again, the, you talk about the surrealism, you know, that it, it, it is as strange as that, but um, Ernie O'Malley uh, has a fantastic description. He was just a medical student, but he came mm-hmm. in to see what was going on and he describes looking up O'Connell Street and, and the kids have just raided Elvery's sports goods shop yeah, and they've also raided a tailor's, <laughs> and he describes these kids wearing silk top hats. Which were too big for them. So they'd, go, they'd taken them over their heads and they'd cut out Ned Kelly style <laughs> window boxes, playing golf, football Yeah, You know, wearing. Yeah. And, I mean, the, the sheer oddness and strangeness of the events. And I think, you know, yeah. one of the great things about this book is the only book that really kind of gets the sense of just, just how strange this thing is that's happening in the city.
2: Well, when you read about the looters and what they were walking down O'Connell Street with, and, the, and they'd no idea they were very close to being shot, you know, but this parade of madness going down O'Connell Street. I just when you I, when you just think about somebody in a, in the GPO looking out at this stuff, you know. I think Christ, what's you know, what's this all about? What are yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, th- I think more than anything else it's uh, it's the images really of that they're just yeah. quite yeah. quite uh, fantastic
1: really. And speaking of images and, and of Pierce, one of the familiar images from the Rising is a photograph which has Pierce surrendering. It's the actual mm. surrender. You know, it's very formalized. Mm. And in the photograph, as most of us saw it, it's actually it's a bit like Stalin. There's a, there's a figure cut out of the photographs, as they were. The more, more recent versions that have the proper photograph. And it's Elizabeth O'Farrell who was the nurse who actually arranged the surrender. Mm. And Somebody decided at some point that she couldn't have a woman in the image. Yeah. And you very deliberately, I mean, the, again, the kind of parallel to Henry in terms mm. of this sort of colourful exaggerated mm. figure, female figure, is Miss O'Shea. Yeah. Um, but obviously, there was—you know—you were very conscious of the fact that one of the really interesting things about all of those events is how prominent women, in fact, are, in the mm. event, and of course then how much they get mm. left out. Of. So you were—you were putting her back in.
2: Oh yeah, very much. And she's so, a violent
1: uh, figure. I mean, she's not. She's not no, a sort no, of. No, uh, no,
2: she's not. Uh, uh, she's not playing the harp. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah. no, not at all. And uh, no, she's a psychopath in many ways. Yeah. But, uh You know. Is a beautiful woman any less of a psychopath because she's beautiful? That was the issue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and Bonnie and, and Clyde. You know. Yeah, but it was just, it was a one, there was a uh, you know, I, I was very lucky in ways. A lot of the first books I read were just bang on, you know, in terms of getting me going but at the same time around about the same time I was writing the book it took three years to to write I was doing other things as well but three years basically there was a wonderful exhibition in Kilmainham jail called Guns and Chiffon yeah and there was a lovely booklet with it as well but it was fascinating about during the civil war Kilmainham housed women exclusively women aged I think something like 14 to 80 yeah diehard republicans who you know wouldn't wouldn't say yes yeah and uh, that really sparked off, I think, Miss O'Shea, you know, the notion of Miss O'Shea. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I suppose Henry's gripe is that he was cut out of the picture. Yeah. He's beside De Valera. Yeah. And he was cut out. Yeah. And in one version, in the early textbooks, his elbow his elbow survived and he could point to that and say, that's my elbow. But then the, that even got cut out, so he wasn't in the picture, even though he was there, he saw it all. Yeah. And he was never an MP, he was never a TD, he was, you know, he you know, he never got the, the so, uh, and so, in a way, while he's cut out, I put other people in, in a way. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, Miss O'Shea, it's not, I, I, fundamentally, I think it would be kind of a bit, slightly dishonest of me to say I was making a political point there because more than anything else, I wanted her to be as full and as larger than life as Henry. but the perfect match in many yeah. ways, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it is that, that mythic side of the book, you know. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I, mean, w- but, I mean, you mentioned political, but I mean, the book is very political mm. because oh, yeah. uh, the deep, deep, deep cynicism and scepticism in the book about... The people who begin to take over, you know, hmm. certainly in the second half of the book, you know, you get that sense that actually power is shifting. Yeah. And certain people are going to take advantage of that power, and of course this this leads on to the, the next books and, and, and figures like Henry, who really don't have any place in yeah. in, in the Ireland that merges. And I wondered. I suppose it's inevitable that you know, you're not just writing about the past, you were also writing about the present. I mean, that had to have been influenced oh, yeah. to some extent by the way Ireland was when you were writing the book.
2: Yeah, well, I never, I, I, I've, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't lose sleep over it being, being categorised as historical fiction, but I never saw it that way. It just happened yeah. to be the narrator was an old man. Yeah. Like, my father is alive, he's, he's 90, mm. and he's one year younger than the state. You know, and I don't think he sees himself as historical because he inhales and exhales, you know? Yeah. Uh, And my mother's 88. And they're both, you know, very alive. So I never saw it as historical as such. But yeah, it is political. I mean, it's really fascinating. Ernie O'Malley is probably the person who captures it in that, in his, uh, On Another Man's Wound, Mm. where he explains basically in very clear language what it's all about. So, you know, why do you shoot a policeman? you shoot the policeman in the hope that the black and tans will come into the town and set fire to the local creamery and convert the local popul- population to the cause of republicanism. Yeah. That's what it's all about, reprisal, counter-reprisal, yeah. counter-counter-counter-reprisal. And, when he, and he, he, he expressed it as bluntly and as clearly as it could possibly yeah. be expressed. And yeah. you know, when you live in a quieter time, and uh, it's a shock. It is really a shock. Oh, that's p- that, at least in part is what it's all about. That's what you do. And of course, that was happening right up to uh, the time when I was writing the book. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, a bomb would be planted in the hope that something would happen. So yeah. it's, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it didn't feel like, uh, it, it felt like a, a different version of um, the day. You know, as, as yeah. often is the case. Yeah. It's great, there's a certain continuity. When you mentioned Elvary's, it, like Elvry's is all, like the name of Elvry's is a godsend because everybody knows about Elvry's and it's still there. Cleary's, was, Cleary's was there, is you there know, yeah, you all know, sorts so of places So many are still places there. there. Yeah. Trinity College, of course, yeah. in its cranky form, was there, and uh, so a lot of the places were, you know, they were there. So it and that brings a kind of something as a novelist, something as simple as a name of a shop. Yeah, can it's like a. a, 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 a a string that brings you, you know, back and you could just pluck the string and the note brings you back a hundred years just because you walked by Elvries a couple of days ago. Yeah. Somebody else walked by Elvries a hundred years ago. It's brilliant. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll
1: bring in the audience. I'm sure people have lots of questions they'd like to ask. Just ask for two things. One is that the the usual you should be warmed up by now, so the gap between me asking for questions and that sort of deadly silence will be as short as possible. And also, if you would frame your statements in the form of a question, it would, it would help. Um, yeah, so there's, yeah, there's, yeah. That would uh, help. there's somebody <laughs> up there. Would um, you want to wait for the mic? It's just coming to you, just for everybody else's sake. Thanks very much.
0: Uh, Ruddy. Um, Do you think Chelsea can win the league this year?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's about time a bit of reality was injected into the conversation. Uh, I live in hope, but I have my doubts. He's a very
1: imaginative writer, you know, so... uh. Yeah, you're obviously all um, tired of serious subjects. Yes, thanks very much. There's a lady here. The mic may not get to you. um, Oh, I
3: beg your pardon. Sorry, there's somebody up here. I couldn't see. Thank you. To frame it in a question: Is everybody aware, or did anybody see uh, the Irish Times column, the regular one on our roots back near the back of the paper? I read Vintoril Bell tells name. I think it's the way we or who we are. Farm or something, Uh, they had a a mention just the other day. I happened to notice the um, pension records are being put online for people who were involved in the old IRA from 1916 on, or the whole war, of it meant combatants um, from the Irish side. And uh, apparently it was rated, uh, assessed very carefully by I suppose civil servants or something later on in the 20s, uh, what your contribution was, and you had to. Provide some evidence whether you were in the GPO or whatever, and uh, it's all on the record. This would be fascinating material, apparently. when it, it, it may be on by now. I know it's coming on very shortly. Mm, it was just, yeah. a, a, and um, I think if you were in from 1916, you get a higher pension, or you got a higher pension than if you were Johnny Come Lately, who got involved in the Town War episode yeah. you were mentioning in 1919 yeah. or whatever. So yeah. it's just, I don't know, it'd, it'd be very interesting. I don't know when it's online or what the reference is, but I know it was just mentioned in the Irish Times the other day.
1: It's, it's, it's true, they are um, becoming available and they are an extraordinary resource. I, mean, I I mentioned earlier that it's probably the best documented revolution ever. Um, and, and you have this huge new volume of, of uh, documentation. The pension records will be particularly interesting because there was money at stake. <laughs> and because there was money at stake, uh, you're absolutely right, they, the statements had a rigor to them because they didn't want to give people money. And of course, lots of people applied for pensions who had no right to them. Uh, so they were very rigorously scrutinised and they had to be attested, so far as I know, by two other, two, two more senior people in the IRA had to sign off on these things. So there's a, there's a whole set of detail in them. It's very interesting though, it's been a very tortuous process getting them out. And one of the reasons is, of course, because so much of the stuff is still alive. People are still very, very sensitive to, to so many of the issues. When you get down to that level of detail, you know, what family kills what family is, is, is still an issue. And uh, we were just mentioning, really, the this is the original uh, hardback of the, the, the book, and there's a wonderful photograph on it, which is uh, a kind of a silhouette of a kid mm. against uh, a sort of cityscape. And he has what looks like a gun I it think was a, on his shoulder. Yeah, and, we yeah. used it. and like just apropos of this thing of, the memory still being alive, you were just telling me a story about that photograph. Yeah, when the
2: book came out originally in 1999, uh, I, to my shame, I can't remember the name of the family now, it, I, I have it down somewhere, I wasn't anticipating the question, it just struck me when Finton brought that particular edition. Um, one of the children of that boy was in Easton's and saw the photograph and said, that's Dad, because they knew the photograph. Uh, and they, he lived in Conquer Hill in Clontarf, and um, I met them, I met uh, two of his children. We went to, we had dinner. And uh, when he retired, he started carving little puppets. And they gave me one of his wooden legs. Right. <laughs> I have I don't know, a little wooden leg, but <laughs> about that size. Absolutely, sir. So yeah, they were very much alive, and I think he yeah. lived in Plon- in Malahide, and so there. And she lived and still lived, and one of his daughters still lived in Plon- in, in from Conquer Hill. Yeah. Great name for a rebel to live in, isn't it, Conquer, yeah, Conquer Hill. Hill? yeah. yeah. And uh, he, the, other, the other man lived in Malahide. Yeah, so it's it is still yeah, it's, it's very vivid. And so there's a there And I, I'm going to come to
1: this lady here now. Yeah, okay. thank you.
4: Well, it's just from my own memory. Um, I'm 72 now, and my father was involved in 1916 up in North King Street. He was on his way cycling in from Clontarf on his bike. They were going up to the magazine fort in, um, in, but that didn't come about. But um, he had a package on his back of his bike in brown paper, in it was the ammunition that he was going to use. And it fell off the bike, and an OUC man said, uh, sir, but my father uh, dressed very, very, you know, he was working in um, the, um, in Talbot Street, you know the uni- uh, anyway, you know the place down there was very Republican, uh, Republican Outfitters. So he was dressed very well going into fight the Revolution. But the package fell off the back of the bike. The RUC man said, "Sir, you've dropped your package," and handed it back to him. <laughs> and uh, Daddy, Sean Ford went on his way. Yeah. Uh, just a little aside from that, my father didn't talk about it. He said, if, you have, yeah. "If you've carried a gun, if you've ever shot a gun, you don't want to talk about it." so mm-hmm. i think a lot of it. and i think there are very few of us left children of people who are actually involved mm-hmm. so that's a little shame uh,
1: uh, yeah. i mean it's a very good point and it's perhaps why the literature is so important because the literature not only is wonderful literature in itself but it also takes the place of the personal stories which were never told. you know, that, mm-hmm. As you say, so many parents, fathers, never, never even tell, told their children very much about it. The people who boasted most about it were probably the people who didn't actually <laughs> do anything very much. <laughs> yes, please. Uh,
5: thank you both very much. It's been just a, a lovely session. Um, just touching on the last point that the lady made about, you know, how it was never spoken about and if your father carried a gun, you know, he didn't talk about it. And I, I've, uh, My wife works with people now who are sort of between the ages of 70 and 90 and she encounters that a lot, that, you know, there, that there are people coming forward now who are saying, you know, who have interesting documents and so on, buried under the bed and said, we never thought about it because it was never spoken about. Um, I'd be of your generation as well, and one of the things that I grew up with, uh, particularly growing up in you know sort of a very divided county Monaghan, uh, uh, was uh, you know there were monuments to the old IRA, and uh, you know if you dared to kind of create a comparison between the old IRA and the IRA which was now actually active in other parts of Monaghan town and across the border and so on. Uh, you know, you were very often very severely reprimanded and told there is no comparison, you know These guys who are doing this now are some kind of brutes and animals, but the old IRA were heroes I'm just wondering in the course of your of your research when you began to investigate the period of 1916 and particularly the period afterwards did Did, 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 you, did you find uh, that, that firstly, would that have been something you would have encountered, Roddy, that, that sense that the old IRA were just not to be compared with the new IRA? And well, did, like you that, 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 did you find in actual fact that, I mean, did you find that it was all honourable, or did you find evidence of dishonour, or did you find that there was pragmatism, or how did that strike you as well, a writer?
2: Uh, yeah, that, 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 uh, that opinion or attitude would have been something I'd grown up with myself, yeah. And a lot of people would have done as well, the difference between then and now or now as it was then, so to speak. Um, but uh, another great book, I read The IRA and Its Enemies by Peter Hart, which was all, like, almost like a parochial history. Uh, the IRA in Cork and uh, how, you know, it's almost like Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael. If you, were, you know, if you were in one parish, you were Fianna Fáil. If you were in the next parish, you were Fianna Gael. That rivalry, which often expresses itself in football, in the GAA and blood on the pitch, uh, was taken to, you know, more extremes. So, uh, you know, when you, when, you, when, you, when you read deep, I think, now I haven't read deep about this topic in 15 or 16 years, so it's all a little bit rusty, but that particular book springs to mind where, you know, again, I'd, I'd reiterate that I'm, I'm very happy I live in the Republic of Ireland, and whether it could have been achieved without, uh, a war of independence is very debatable or whatever, you know, but, um, when you read just uh, what was done and the, the dirty deeds that were done uh, there 's no escape in the fact that it 's not black and white. It, wasn't, you know, it was presented to us in school as the battle between good and evil yeah. frankly
5: sorry, just um, um, if I could mention and uh, this is an event that I have no personal relationship with at all, but um, a former collaborator of mine, but also a former collaborator of yours in more recent years, Joe Byrne uh, has a piece of theatre which was performed, it came and went without even a review I believe last year, and it's simply called The Rising and it's related, it's narrated by two um, sort of comic figures, one representing the orange tradition, one representing the the green tradition. Mm. The narrator thing may or may not work for people, but as 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 a crash course in what it must have been like to have been in the GPO, uh, uh, and then alternatively on the Psalm. I really recommend it to people. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it's coming back to Powers Court now in the coming weeks, if right. I could just make that look. Just simply out of, out of uh, not to promote anybody's work in particular, but just yeah. as an extraordinary, visceral kind of, nothing more than a reenactment, really, uh, yeah. of what it must have been like. I really recommend that as well. Thank you very much, for t-
1: Thank you, um, I think we've just got time for one more question. So there's just somebody in the middle here. Oh, I uh, beg your pardon, sorry, oh, can't see
5: that. Hello, with, uh, Fintan here, I can't resist asking the question about uh, the next best play in terms of the crash of the Celtic Tiger. You, you did the, um, the, the Government Inspector, I thought it was very good, and there were some references that echoes what's happening in Ireland, but as Fintan and a lot of us are still looking for the big play about the crash, um, do you, would you be thinking along that, or do you think we will Me? see a big play or a book? About
2: <laughs> t- to write a big play about the crash?
5: Or a, a book, yeah. Or, or no. I mean, uh,
2: you know, the crash is there. I I wrote a novel which came out uh, last year called The Guts, and it's not about the crash, it's not about, but it's about, you know, human anxiety as a result of it in many ways. Uh, It's about middle age as well, it's about music, but it's also about the country we're living in now, you know? And I don't think I'd want to write something about, the crash. I did plan a television series uh, I was going to write about two families living side by side, both of whom had, you know, risen somewhat during the the daft years, which aren't, weren't all that many of the 15 or so years, but the madness was quite relatively short-lived, so to speak. But, um, and then one family is suffering much more than the other. Uh, but by the time In a way, by the time it was doing the rounds of various television companies, I really felt and and other people felt that, you know, the time had passed, you know, we'd we'd moved on a bit further so that for me now to write about the crash as such, even if I had a mind to, uh, I think it would be a bit, um, I don't know, a bit stale. So no, it's not something I would be really interested in. You see with
5: other playwrights, you know, some big play or well, big with a bit of I mean, event. you
2: know, I write what I write and somebody else could probably produce something really magnificent. Thank you. Uh, um, yeah, I know there's just one more uh, that we can get in,
1: so I, I just want to get as many questions as we possibly can. So if you just hang on for one sec, the mic's coming across to you.
2: Yeah, thanks very much. Um, I just wanted to ask to tie in with some of the discussion earlier on, because there was some talk about the dangers and pitfalls around dramatising uh, real people from history and real traumas that have occurred, etc., etc. Uh, and I know that this is, for, for want of a better word, historical fiction, but you did mention the character of the nurse, who was a real person and who was quite literally airbrushed out of history. And you talked about her in the context of something, um, I know she might have been useful to the story, and you also wanted to portray p- uh, women in a particular way to explore the the characters of women at the time in ways that they're not usually... Uh, you understand what I'm getting at there. But I'm wondering, uh, is the fact that she was a real person with a, a very specific personality, did that come into it, or did that did, did you write about her in a different way than you wrote about Well, Henry, no, I of think of I, I, I do mention her in the book, if I recall correctly, but I didn't make a major character out of her, but she was there. You know, so Henry, my fictional character, who, bear in mind, never existed. Yeah. And this is what you're in, you know. I, because I've been asked, because I've written about, you know, in the, in the Henry books, I've had him rub shoulders against people who actually exist, or existed rather. And, uh, you know, people are saying, are you allowed to do that? And, um, you know, yes, is the answer. <laughs> it's how you do it and if it's any good or if it's accurate. But, I mean, I've been, you know, people have cornered me in pubs and started castigating me for my depiction of various characters. I, you know, I don't really care to be honest with you. And I, I, I always remind it's a novel, and the narrator doesn't exist. But the notion that you somehow can't stray into a room that actually existed, if you're writing a novel, would probably, if we went down to the bookshops and started going through some good novels, I'm not including my own, and started, you know, probably there's a big, big chunk of fiction there that we, you know, if you can't have a, if you can't have a character, rubbing shoulders against a real person. Can we have them walking down a real street, for example? And the answer, of course, is yes. But, um, yeah, so I've, I've no, um, no hesitation, really. I know, you know, every, you know as, a, as a writer, I think, you know, Fintan would be familiar with this, and other writers, in the room. When, you, when you kind of, and I use the word, when you expose your work, when it becomes public, uh, there's a reaction. If you're lucky, you know, indifference is the terror. I think <laughs> that that would be the terror, you know. But there's a reaction, and it comes from for various reasons, you know. You know, I'm often you know I'm often quite stunned about what people object to, and but they do. So um, it's, it's something. that If I decide to go for a certain piece of work and it involves real or you know real names, so to speak, uh, I just do it. I don't know if I'm answering your question, uh, but. I'm enjoying myself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
1: we're going to have to finish up. Um, somebody was asking a question earlier on, or m- making a point about um, the way in which you know the the modern IRA monsters, the the old IRA heroes. You know, and um, one of the things that Imaginative fiction and drama does it does lots of things. I mean, it gives us lots of pleasure. It, it gives aesthetic pleasure. It works in its own terms completely. But one of the reasons why it's important in terms of the questions we're talking about today about memory and public memory um, is that it, when it's good, it does one thing, which is it complicates things. Uh, you know, it, 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 if drama or fiction is good, by definition, it's good because it's making us see the familiar in strange ways. And perhaps at a hundred years' distance, maybe we're just reaching a point whereby the public discourse around history can catch up with what our imaginative writers have been doing for a long time, which is complicating things. And actually saying, you know, um, if you look at something like 1916, maybe we might be able to say, um, yes, parts of it are really horrible. You know, the fact that so many children are, are killed in cold blood in it the fact that so, some of the actions of the rebels are, are, are really pretty vicious, the fact that they don't have a democratic mandate, um, and we can say that the vast majority of those people acted out of a real self, sense of self-sacrifice, a real sense of idealism, um, you know, showed a kind of commitment and energy that the country could do with in, in, in different forms. You know, It doesn't have to be one or the other. Maybe we can do justice both to the complications of history of the things that people did in the circumstances they were in, and also to um, some sense of nobility, some sense of something greater. Um, perhaps we don't have to be prisoners of that dichotomy. Uh, and I think if we do get to that point over the centenary decade, we have a huge amount to thank our creative writers for in, in getting us there, and not least to thank Roddy Doyle um, for his work, but also for his wonderful um, conversation uh, over the last hour or so. Thanks very much indeed, Arie. Thank, Thank, <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you.